Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. So welcome over to Product. Today, we have Cyprian Vero, the CPO of Lobster with us. Cyprian, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. Thanks for having me, Eric. So my background is in uh, software engineering. That's how I got my uh, start into the digital world. And immediately from uh, college, I went to work for Axiom. It was a big data company. It still is, I think. Did that for about a year, but I was extremely bored. Uh, I think my, my head was always about building something and impacting rather than adding to something bigger. And it was, you know, a time of Web 2.0. So, you know, the times where you could actually start creating a, a single app page applications on the web. And there was a really good moment to enter the digital space and actually try to do something there. So there was a five years of a lot of errors and problems and discoveries and learning the market. I was able to focus on e-commerce, which was pretty pretty profitable at that time. Did it for five years and sold my first company. And shortly after, it was a, actually a second kind of wave of innovation, which was mobile. Mobile just started and... One of the things that was very interesting in mobile is that it, because it was such a new concept, specifically the new medium of smartphones and new interaction with a new medium, it was lacking the tools uh, to understand that new medium in terms of analytics. So I, I've built a user experience analytics tool. It was called heatmaps.io. And it was all about measuring your touch interactions, your zooms, your swipes to really understand how people interact with a mobile application. So that startup, I, I moved to LA. I used to be in Poland based in there. So I moved to LA and started, uh, you know, selling it to enterprise clients that were very new to the mobile as well. So it was a very interesting learning curve in digital. And at the same time, I founded another startup in the IoT space. It was called Allocation X, and it was all about proving the ability to track outdoor advertisement. So the concept was that in LA, we wanted to take a an IoT device, put it on a billboard outside of an intersection which advertised a movie and then put another beacon in the movie theater and see if we could understand how many audiences were potentially seeing that advertisement and actually seeing the movie. We learned a lot and failed in that company. It was very interesting in terms of a business model failure. So that was another amazing learning on my journey. And shortly after, I think was I was there for five years, I sold the company. And I think it was a pivotal moment in my career when I asked a question, what the hell do I want to do? You know, I've been a founder for 10 years. And this is the first time I really found that there's a role like a CPO. Before then, I was kind of an engineer who was forced to go and sell and do the business and do the marketing. And it was the first time when I was like, you know, what does a person do that loves building products, but loves doing it a lot? And for me, what I found is that you can join a much larger organization and be engaged in so many more products and solve so many different more problems. And with that idea, I went to join a company in Netherlands who's called CrowdMobile and was engaged in everything from payments to chatbot applications to blockchain. It was just everything, even SMS and old technology like that. So that was a really, really interesting place for me to work in. But my newest and, and latest uh, place where I spent my time innovating is Lobster Inc., which was acquired by Ecolab, a huge chemical company that acquired an e-learning company. And uh, my work here is to bridge the opportunity between 
at Ecolab, which provides also operational information and, and audit with learning, which provides the solution to the problems identified by audit. So that's what I do. And at Lobster, I'm the CPO. And in that actually role, it's a very interesting role because I actually overlook the user experience, but also customer operations, customer service, implementation, and also technology. So in that sense, it, the entire product and everything that touches the product is within my control. So hopefully that's the, that's a short intro to my background and a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, that's a great intro. Thank you. So, you know, I'm curious, moved from Poland, I think it was, right, to uh, yeah, LA. Yeah, sure. Yeah. How was that different, you know, both, I mean, from uh, building a company, building product standpoint? So I, I didn't tell you that, but I do have education in U.S. So I actually went to high school in Memphis, Tennessee, and I went to college there. So I had my bachelor's degree in software engineering from U.S. college. So I, I knew American culture, at least of the South. Uh, L.A. is much different than Memphis. <laughs> but um, so it wasn't my first experience with U.S. And, you know, obviously at that time, it was, I think, 2011, 12. I knew very well where the hub of innovation is. And the customers were the driver behind the move. You know, I was working with companies like Adobe, Evernote, and a lot of them were hubbed in, in there and they were expecting the same time zone and communication and visits. So I had to move. What I loved about LA was just this very laid back culture. And it's so different than Europe. In Europe, you don't have that. Everything is operational, you know, whereas in, in LA it was more of what's the dream? Where do we want to go? Why do we want to go there? And it was a really good vibe. I really loved it. So talk to me about your experience now at Ecolab. What are you guys solving there? What, what are your big challenges? What are you working on? What, what keeps you up at night? What excites you? Yeah, I think the challenge is huge. So if you look from above, the acquisition of a, a learning company by a chemical company sounds quite radical and doesn't make sense at the first sight. But actually what Ecolab does really well, it helps organizations with their operations. They do it for chemicals, but they also do it through audit. And what we did at Lobster is we provide operational training. So think about all the workers in hotels, you know, the cleaners, or think about people at McDonald's that, you know, work at the back of the house and need to learn how to, you know, put your burger together. This is the kind of operational work. And if you look at the problems that those companies face is that they have a lot of churn. So they have to train the same knowledge a lot to new audience, well, new workers all the time. So what we try to do is we try to really understand the problems that those huge enterprises have and deliver them a platform with which they can quickly onboard and train new employees to deliver the operational work efficiently and safely. And the impact is huge because if you can really quickly educate a new employee, you're mitigating risks, but you're also delivering value much quicker to the market. And does, you know, those companies feel much bigger boost of uh, value for themselves at the end of the day. So that's what I spend most of my time. And it's very, very interesting being part of the, you know, huge enterprise, which has such a big legacy of customer base, 100 year old company, any big brand you think of, we uh, already help, right? So having access to uh, such amazing customer base has definitely been very exciting to really try to think about increasing the value for them. So you've been in a chief product role or something similar at various companies. How did you help product get a seat at the executive table? How did you communicate the value to the executive teams there? Yeah, I think this is this is a really interesting question because it just happened kind of naturally. So I have to like think back a little bit. 
Actually, if I look back at the, how the companies were structured in the past, the startups, you know, you had this very technical founder and you had this business person that could go and sell the, the ideas that you could bring with technology. And I think over the years, that line between the, the CTO and the CEO got blurry. Why? Because technology is not the answer to every problem right now. It's more of there is a problem and you try to fit the technology to it. And someone who understands which technology to use and how to shape it into a product that solves a problem is this new category of a, a leader in an organization. So if I entered an organization and they didn't have that position, which actually was part of my journey in the past, the reason I found myself at the table was because I was bridging the, the technology and the business together and creating the link and explaining them, you know what, this is what's next. Okay, this is what's possible. A lot of times they got stuck about this is what we have. We have this technology, we have this client base, but what do we do next? How do we move forward? How do we bridge what we have? How do we bridge what's on the market? So because you can provide that by being that middle link between technology, the, the markets, the, you really are well positioned to be at that table, right? The answering the questions of what next from the product perspective is exactly what the company needs. So we're seeing more and more companies uh, creating those new roles and it's actually fascinating if you look at the enterprises who normally had positions such as chief marketing officer or chief innovation officer, and they were more, you know, chief information officer was more about digital space inside the company. How do we make the, the company adapt digitally inside and, and be quicker and have new processes automated? The chief marketing officer was specifically very prevalent in companies that had physical products that, you know, had the research and development department that created the product and then them thinking about how to package it and, and how to reach to the customer. Whereas a lot of the companies now say, how do we establish our presence digitally? And who's that person that can help us bridge that gap between technology, the market digitally? And uh, oftentimes they think, oh, well, there's something called the CPO that uh, can help us deliver that. Awesome. You know, it, when you're, I was listening to that and, and thinking about our conversation earlier, it triggered this whole idea of innovation. And we had some conversation about forced innovation. Let's talk a little bit about forced innovation. How does purposely setting constraints force product leaders, you know, to, to think about things differently, to maybe, you know, innovate beyond just optimization? Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question. I think we look at constraints a lot of times, which is something like that stops us from innovating. And I think putting constraints and enforcing constraints on your teams can actually accelerate innovation. So forced innovation is really mindfully setting those constraints. And we see constraints in the business all the time, you know, lack of resources, maybe lack of funding, maybe the market is drying out, maybe the competition is doing something better. There's always certain constraints. But actually a few years ago, I was participating in a conference just as a listener, as a participant. And there was a guy that wrote a book, A Beautiful Constraint. I think his name was Mark Bodden, I believe. And he wrote that book with some other guy. And he was talking about how there's many companies who are embracing constraints to actually force themselves to leap beyond just a simple optimization. You know, we have this natural tendency to go 20% more every year, you know, like, hey, let's increase sales by 20%. Let's shorten the time. But what happens if you ask a question like, what's going to happen if we decrease something that takes an hour into almost in real time? Is that possible? How are we going to, what's going to be the impact? So forced innovation is this toolkit that you have as a leader to mindfully go to your team and say to them, what if instead of 
getting a million dollar from a completely new market, we're going to get additional million dollar from the same customer without spending any additional marketing dollars on acquiring new customers. And saying, what can we do with that additional marketing dollars if we do that? How much more impactful can we be? Now, it's a great concept, but by itself, it's it's not enough. You really need to be ready with your team to guide them through that concept of forced innovation. So your team, at, at when they hear this idea, they might go into a mindset of a victim. Holy shit, you know, we have now to think about how we're going to work more. And this is impossible. It's impossible. You know, it's going to be this victim like, oh, we, we can't do that. But, you know, a little bit after they it settles down this whole idea onto them, they, they might go into this mode of neutralizing, right? So to give you an example, let's say COVID happened last year, right? And it's still happening. For our company, one of the biggest impacts was hospitality industry. So hospitality industry has been extremely affected. And we were really established in the hospitality industry. And it was one of our main markets. So when COVID happened, you know, one of the questions was like, what do we do with that market that doesn't exist financially for us? No one has money to pay. They don't have customers. So how can they pay for us? And the natural question in that instance is, how do you go around the problem? Well, one way to go around the problem is you go to another market. You go, well, if I can't sell to that market, I'll find another market. And that's more I'm talking about neutralizing, right? That's the, the mindset of people that when they're faced with constraint, they're trying to find another way out of it. What a person that has a mindset of embracing the, the constraint, so as a leader, you keep them forced on, no, let's not escape from that market. Let's still embrace it, right? What does that market still need from us? How can we benefit from COVID hitting us and affecting the market? So what we did, for instance, we look about how can this benefit us? And we can only do that if, if the leadership uses this forced innovation to say, stay on the target. Don't worry about escaping it. Don't worry about going away from this idea. Embrace it, right? So in an enterprise world, you want to go a long term with a customer, right? You really want to engage and have a 5, 10, 20 year relationship. So when COVID happened, even though it might take a year or two, you really want to ask yourself, what's going to happen to that customer after two years? And you might realize that even though the market was affected, that doesn't mean the customer doesn't want the value from your product. They still might want your product. They just might not afford it at this moment, right? So what we realized, for instance, is that even though our market was affected, the value of the product was still there. It's just that the customer couldn't pay us at that moment. So we said, well, what can we do to the customer so that we reach customers we couldn't before because they weren't ever had time for us? Well, we said, well, what if we provide them through this time the, the solution for free? And what if we allow them to not stress out about not being able to deliver something they have to anyways? And what we're hoping to achieve is a long-term relationship beyond COVID. Because if we help them at this moment, we're hoping that they will recognize this in the future and thus the long-term relationship is going to be stronger. And that's purely saying we're not escaping from the problem. We're trying to embrace the problem. And that's what the forced innovation is. You know, here the forced came from the outside. We, we didn't plan for it. But as a leader, you can actually put a mindful constraint on the team. And I think one of the interesting examples was Audi. That was one of the examples they gave in a book. And when Audi was trying to win Le Mans in 24 hours, one of the engineers asked, like, how can we win 
La Mans by not being the fastest car. And, you know, everyone was like, how do we become fastest? And he was like, how do we put a constraint of not being the fastest, but we still win? And what turned out is they said, well, efficiency, fuel efficiency. So let's change an engine to an engine that's more fuel efficient. And that allowed them to win because they mindfully put a constraint, say, everyone is trying to win with speed. What if we win with something else, right? And by mindfully setting the constraint, you're forcing to completely rethink the process. And in organizations, especially big ones, you always see established processes. And uh, setting a crazy constraint like that will basically destroy the process. The process will no longer be able to be performed. And thus, you have to really rethink it. And one of the toolkits I use, and it was also uh, described in that innovation conference I went to and I use it, is if you propose a propelling question, propelling for your organization, you should help your teams think how to approach that crazy question at the beginning. So if you ask almost an impossible task to be done, sometimes we fall immediately into all the paths that we already been through, all the old ways of solving the problem. But what I've learned is that there's so many other opportunities, like what you can use this tool called what if questions. What if you get a funding from your customer instead of your investors? What if you replace X functionality with Y functionality? You know, that was kind of with Audi. Or what if you reduce a certain cost and you start giving them all those questions and saying, we're not only here, we have opportunity everywhere. Joint ventures. I speak to a lot of founders. They don't even know what a joint venture is, that it's possible to get what you don't have by partnering with someone and creating a joint venture proposition that can be successful. A lot of times we always feel about the resources we have and we don't expand beyond those resources because we're never being asked to. And forced innovation forces you to ask those questions and then propel you beyond what you have. Yeah, so I have, a, I have a bunch of questions from there. Let's pick one thread and go down it. Talk to me about your experience with forced innovation. You know, can you give us some examples of how it's worked from you? I mean, I love the Audi example, right? Where, you know, everyone's racing for speed and they start looking at, well, how can we get faster? It's actually not by going faster for a period of time, but it's by going slower for longer without having to stop, right? In essence, tell me some more stories. Sure. So from a personal one, the recent one was, it was COVID. And I was exactly describing what we did is when we lost the ability to sell, we thought, what is the value for us? The value from us out of that was the market reach. So we kind of changed our KPIs. We went from dollar value to reach, right? Because it's like penetration. You want to get penetration in the moment where the market is vulnerable. And we actually see that a lot uh, as well with companies who are using that moment to do a lot of acquisitions because they see the opportunity to do a land grab. And they're actually using the constraint of COVID to accelerate their market penetration. So that's one example we're also really working on. In the past, we, you know, we had a situation where the business was relying heavily on, so in the business of Q&A, answering questions, before NLP, natural language processing, you pretty much had to throw people at the solution. So if you had a question coming in, you want someone to answer it, you had to have a human answering it. And we had about 3,000 people answering questions. So how do you open new markets and scale that without actually scaling, you know, and getting all those people on? And that's where we, for instance, said really a lot and said, what if we decrease the amount of people instead of increasing? 
what do we have to do to actually, instead of having 3,000 folks answering questions, we go to 100? And the answer was that we had to really invest in NLP. But in order to invest in NLP, we had to first collect a database of knowledge to build that NLP uh, on, uh, to use the, the natural language processing. So that's how we use the constraint. Instead of saying, sure, the answer is simple. We always scale with people. The question was like, how can we be more efficient, deliver the same thing much quicker because a normal person respond can be three, four or five minutes. But we said to ourselves, well, the constraint is that we want to answer within the first 30 seconds. And that constraint of 30 seconds meant we had to rethink completely how we do that. And the only way to do it was through automation and technology, right? And the technology turned out to be uh, NLP. And it was extremely successful because what happened at the end is we reduced the costs of the human cost of operators answering questions. But we also found something extremely interesting. The quicker your response is, the more engagement you're going to get from the customer. So if you're waiting a long, long time, you might give up on something. But if you start typing in and you're going to get an answer immediately, you're going to be prompted to ask another question and your engagement with the product is much bigger. So that constraint that we initially set for scalability actually also turned out to provide us much bigger business opportunity. And that only comes if you're not following your normal procedures, but you set a mindful constraint. So that was a kind of two two examples from my business. And you can do it a lot. You know, you always have people uh, joining and leaving your organization. And there's always a question, do we replace or do we rethink it? Can you mindfully change the shape of your team and see what's going to happen? This is a really a very good tool to show you also where your gaps are in your organization. Do you have people who believe so much in your product that they really want to succeed? Or do you really have people that just clip the, the check and if you put a big challenge in front of them, they will give up? That's also not great, right? So that's a very powerful way of using it. It's, but you also have to always give a good reason why you're putting a forced constraint on your team. You can't just come in and just tell to them, just do it because I want you to do it, right? You have to tell them what is the big benefit for everyone out of that? Why, if we're going to go so crazy on this specific constraint, what is the benefit to me, to you, to the company? Because that's how you're going to convert their initial mindset of a victim or no into more of a transformer and willingness to, to actually do that. So, you know, this, this conversation about innovation also triggered a, a thought on my part about long-term roadmaps, right? Mm. Do having long-term roadmaps hinder innovation? You know, I don't think there's one answer to that because you have certain businesses which must rely on a roadmap. I mean, you want to build a physical product um, like a house. You have to have a roadmap. If you have a customer who is committing work for you and they have their timelines for instance they need to release something in a certain time like for instance a customer in an enterprise says we need to implement your solution because on the middle of the year we're gonna have this huge rollout which depends on five other divisions and this is a huge coordination so we have to be sure to hit it create a plan and in that instance roadmaps make perfect sense now if you're thinking innovation wise completely for your organization and you're setting your own deadlines for it, then I think it is more important to have a vision and challenge your mindset to why do we have to wait for the vision 10 years? Why can't we achieve that vision in two years? And roadmap is not necessarily going to tell you anything about it. It's not reliable in that instance. So the answer to that question from my side is it depends on where you sit. 
Sometimes roadmaps make perfect sense. On the other hand, I've seen so many times a strong roadmap and then an event happening that completely changed it. So the question is, who does the roadmap satisfy? A CEO who, who just needs to have confidence in you? It's, it's really tricky. Yeah, it just made me think, like going back to the Audi question and making it hypothetical, maybe Audi had a plan you know, for how they were going to do engine improvements or car improvements to get you know an extra five miles an hour top speed, right? And that was this three-year plan in order to get there. And they thought that might help them win the race, right? You know, putting this forced innovation around finding another way to win completely could disrupt a long-term roadmap like that. And if you have a long-term roadmap like that, you might not even go down the path of innovating. So how do we do a better job carving out both the time and the space to innovate in conjunction with our existing roadmaps? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think... It depends where you are in your organization right now. I mean, I see organizations that are old and they're just starving for innovation and they might have a, a roadmap just purely on, hey, let's optimize what we have. And they absolutely don't need that roadmap. They need someone who comes in and, and forces them to rethink it. And you have organizations who found their market. There is a plenty of need for that. And you just need to really deliver and sell. And it's a much different time frame there. So... If you are, in a sense, finding yourself in a place where you found your market value, you are seeing that the customers want it and you just need to sell more of that, focus on just listening to the customers, build a short-term roadmap for them and deliver that. If you are in a place where you have a lot of competition, the market is saturated with solutions, you are really fighting for every customer you're spending a lot of money on marketing. That's when you need to really, instead of thinking about your roadmap, you really need to start asking yourself, how are you going to change this completely, right? We are in this situation as well from Lobster perspective, and we are thinking in terms of our market saturation, competition, and we're asking ourselves instead of the roadmap for the next X amount of years is like, how do we change the game of learning? And we have some amazing ideas about it, which I can't say yet about, but uh, for us, we're at the same stage where the roadmap is not going to save us. It's more of rethinking of what's next that will help us to, to get out of uh, where we are. So you've been a founder three times now. You know, you talked about some of your learnings or at least hinted at some of your learnings when you're talking about your background. You know, tell me about, you know, your big learnings from being a founder and, and what advice you'd have for other first time founders. Well, I think the, the biggest mistake I did, which I felt was really the next step in my career when I started a, a startup, was I need funding. I think this is a one success metrics, which is very vain. I mean, getting initial funding is not making your product successful. And I see a lot of ideas being validated through funding. Like if we're going to get 1 million, we're going to be successful. If we're going to get half a million of funding. So if you are a founder that have an idea the better path to go is really prove it with your customer. Because if your customer really truly believes in this, they can even found your product. I had situations where the customer founded the product and they were the first one. So they invested even before the, the product existed because they truly saw the value. And I'm seeing you know, a lot of the first time founders in, in the situation where the best thing they can do is get funding. And the best thing you can do is, is get market validation for your product and get your first customer sell. So that's my advice to you. Don't look into funding as a solution to your problem, right? Look really to, to the value you can deliver to the client. And if you can't have a client putting money on the table, well, you have to rethink your value proposition, right? Maybe your value is not big enough for the customer. Yeah, I would even say, even if they're not 
putting money on the table in the beginning, if they're those ecstatic customers that are, are more passionate about your product than maybe even you are, then, yeah. then you know you have something and then try to grow those types of people, right? Because then you know you got something. And if you have happy Absolutely. customers like that, the funding is going to chase you. Exactly. And, and I think this is a, a big misconception. This is like, oh, you know, because it, it's like you look at the successful people and you think that's the that's how they made the success because they got the funding, they're successful, they got the clients. But you're, you're missing out on all the work they did beforehand. And, you know, they've learned about what the problem truly is. They found out what's the true cost of that problem. They really had time with the customer to understand whether there's a willingness for that product. And funding, like you mentioned, Eric, will come if you really can show that the customer needs it. And that's the biggest thing, because otherwise you just need to commit. You know, that's the second thing. Commit beyond constraints, because you're going to get a lot of them. You're going to get time where you're going to fail a bunch. You're going to experience time where, you know, your your competition is going to do something. Another thing that I think I've learned is a lot of times it's not about a competition having a better product. And that was um, also a very interesting learning for me. It's who you know and how you can access the market. So again, getting to customers and getting to the right people to open up the market is more important than looking at your competition and if they have a better feature, better solution. I've seen products that have shitty uh, solutions, much worse, but they were able to access the market in a better way. They, They could get closer to the customer, tell a better story, and over time, get that feature. Over time, build to it. But I see founders stressing about and, and searching their competition and saying, oh, my God, they have this feature and they have that feature. And, oh, my God, we're so behind. I think on the competition side, startups worry too much about competition, right? They're less worried about like, hey, let's make customers happy. They're more worried about what their competitors do. And sometimes all they end up doing is copying their competitors' mistakes and doing them later, you know, after 100%. the competitors have already learned for them. 100%. You have no idea if what their feature is actually working. Was their conversion on that? I mean, what is it? You have, you have zero visibility. And they're stressing a lot about it. So I, I wouldn't look at the competition at all. I would just focus on getting to the customer first, having a good story and being a partner. You know, one thing that I truly feel that you really need to commit is being a partner to your customers. I mean, beyond what the customer needs today, ask them, what do they need tomorrow? And be willing to help them with that. Every time I, you know, even from a different seat perspective of being approached by companies to sell something, right? I'm looking for those who are willing to go an extra mile. And maybe there is a software that has less feature, but the type of relationship you're seeing that you can establish is that they're going to be there for you if something goes wrong. And that is something rare. And that is something that helps you take you beyond where you currently are. So definitely, I would advise not to worry about competition at all. Yeah. And I know we have some entrepreneurs, going back to something we just talked about, I know we have some entrepreneurs out there that are like, but how do I build a product to get it into customers' hands if I don't have funding? You guys are skipping that whole part. And I acknowledge that in a lot of cases, you're going to need at least some funding to build a product and get it in customers' hands. But that doesn't mean you need to scale up sales and marketing. You need to have a CFO. You need to do all those things. You know, Get happy customers first. Sometimes you can bootstrap that working on weekends, working you know, after hours. Sometimes you can afford to you know, take six months, a year off from work and work on your startup. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you need funding. But the most important thing I think that both of us are saying is to focus on getting those happy customers and not worry about funding as a vanity metric saying that you know, I've raised a million dollars, therefore I've made it. You know, because that's just raising expectations on yourself. 
It's a debt. It's a debt you're going to carry. And uh, yeah, the expectation is going to be there. And I tell you that after that first day, you're going to see the money. You're going to start questioning yourself. What do I do next? And how do I multiply that money? And how do I deliver value? And that sometimes takes you away from the value to the customer. You start worrying about delivering value to your investor first. So there's absolutely a good reason sometimes. I mean, if you want to build a rocket to the moon, go ahead and get uh, get funding. But if you want to build a mobile application, go to YouTube, pay five bucks for Udemy or whatever it is, 20 bucks. They may have some amazing discounts on teaching you how to build a React Native application or machine learning. There's, There's so much amazing resources, you know? I think that's the difference between now and 10, 15 years ago. Like you had to get someone to teach you or do it for you or get a formal education. Today, you go to YouTube and you have a course on how to build an application or you actually have software to build it uh, using a WYSIWYG and what you see is what you get kind of a deal. So we are living in an amazing time for founders that can prototype amazingly quick. They can deliver solutions without big investments. So it's really that constraint of I don't have funding, you should embrace it. Like if you don't have funding, that's great. What can you do to actually build it? And also getting a little bit of knowledge uh, about technology, even if you don't want to build it yourself, is really good. So I would advise you to still go do some training and and really understand how difficult or or how not difficult it is to build an app. Uh, Or even easier, find a technical co-founder that can help build with you, right? Sure. You know, we we don't have another hour to go down this path, (laughs) but when you started talking about learning via YouTube or learning via other mechanisms made me think about, you know, the United States and the cost of college, right? Where like, oh, you pay $100,000 to get a degree and our politicians are all concerned about like, oh, student loans, you know, we should pay for people's colleges. And I'm thinking college just shouldn't cost a hundred grand. You should be, and I know Google's now launched something recently, but you know, you could become a UX designer. You can get experience programming. You don't necessarily have to leave with a hundred thousand dollars of debt you know, to get a great paying job. And I think that's the whole thing of thinking differently about education, right? If you want to get into tech, that doesn't mean you need to get, you know, spend a ton of money on your education. And, you know, there's value to it in some cases. Like I went to Carnegie Mellon. I think they're, you know, their bachelor's in, in computer engineering or computer sciences, it pays itself off. But there's a lot of other degrees that I would argue do not have that ROI, right? Or you could do something like teach yourself, or take some of the classes that are online or, you know, get that experience that way. Work as an intern at one of the startups after that, you know, build up your career without having that $100,000 and four years of debt behind you. A hundred percent. You know, I did advise a few of my friends that were younger when they wanted to go to college. I said, listen, actually, if you take all the money you're going to spend on college and you're going to buy conferences and you're going to fly there, you're going to spend time in a hotel, have fun get drunk, meet the people. I bet you're going to get so much more out of those four years of traveling, meeting people, hanging out with them, talking about innovation and seeing where their heads are than you're going to get out of the four years of college. But it's a mind shift. You know, it's like the parents want you to go to college. They want to invest money in you and you kind of feel obligated. But the reality is, like you said, Eric, the tools are there right now. And even if you look at the areas like, let's say art, you know, art is like, yeah, but I like to paint, you know, how would I be an artist in a digital age? And I have to go to school to get formal education. You know what you can do today with machine learning and art and creates such a new, amazing concepts, you know, all the guns, generative adversarial models, uh, creating a completely new way of engaging. And there's so much more in music and everywhere. 
where you can really find a space for yourself in a digital space and learn all about it, all about it for probably, you know, 5,000 or less in 12 months. So I think... What's the worst case? Like, you know, the people out there like, oh man, you're telling, you know, young people to take a big risk, but it's not a big risk. You're talking about $5,000 in a year and you find out, you know, this isn't leading to the career I want or leading to the exposure or people won't hire me. Go to college then, you know, it's not going to hurt you. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I'll be honest here. I also go on Udemy and I like, for instance, right now being training myself on uh, machine learning just so I understand what's the opportunity to to actually where to put it, how it works, where does it fit in an organization. And I can tell you from right now, it takes, you know, a few hours on the weekend, you take a course, you learn about it, and you're so much better off this way. And I, I'm sure everyone can do it 100%. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and sorry, we're going off on college and how it should change, but it's kind of fun. Uh, and I think, like, as a person that's a mix of product and marketing, you know how hard it is finding people that are like recent grads from college that have the right digital marketing experience. It's like they might have a business background, they might have you know majored in marketing, but a lot of it is more applied to like how I do marketing at Coca Cola, right? It's not necessarily like even some of the best institutions don't have the best digital marketing programs. So now, like you know, those people could learn a lot more by just jumping on and helping someone out and developing SEO strategies, you know, building out landing pages, learning Marketo, whatever it happens to be. You know, there's a question of whether they even leave with the right education to go after that field. Yeah. And, you know, there's also this this whole thing about failure in startups and, oh, you're going to fail. And one of the best product owners I, I hired was out of a coffee place. He was serving me a coffee and he was talkative and asking, what do you do? And he's like, I used to have the startup, but I failed, you know, right now I'm just, uh, you know, doing coffee. And I'm like, oh, I love you. Like you failed. Tell me about it. Like, why did you fail? You know, what triggered you to do it? Did you try again? And, you know, he was surprised that you can see a positive in trying and testing and failing. And he was one of my best POs in the past. And I think that's not being communicated. That's not the one chance to go and start something and try it. Like go, do, fail, repeat. And I actually love talking to people who failed and they know why and they try again, right? And uh, it's very hard to find them too. Yeah, and those types of people are very hireable too, you know, because if they want to jump into another software company, they've learned a lot. 100%, 100%. So let's wrap this up by talking a little bit about you. What's your favorite product? Oh, my glasses. Like something you wear every day. And I know, you know, we talk digitally, but in reality, I absolutely, you know, love my glasses. They're titanium and they have a zero screws in them. There is not a single screw. It's all wire that's mechanically connected to make glasses. And if you think about a product from a product perspective, how much that saves into building glasses and how lightweight they are, I absolutely love it. And uh, you can't probably even see them. They're so invisible. So that's my favorite product. I, I'm thankful for it every day. So what's what's um, the brand? Uh, the brand is Lindbergh. It's a, I think it's a Swiss brand. And yeah, I got them and I was like super, super interested in how you can make something that's so obvious, you know, glasses. We didn't have innovation in glasses for so long. What are you going to innovate in them, right? And for me to really think about engineering behind such a simple concept of using just a wire to make the entire product and thinking a little bit further is like, how does that impact the cost of making that? And uh, how does that simplifying everything? It's That's why I love it. You know, you can learn from everything. That's why I really always think about glasses when I think about overcomplicating a product. I always go back, you don't need a screw. You just don't need that screw, okay? There's probably a different way of doing it. 
So it just reminds me every single time that there's a different way of looking at complexity. Awesome. So uh, final question for you. Three words to describe yourself. How it's made. Love it's it. The three, it's the three words I always... Uh, this is, you know, the time that Discovery created How It's Made? I was like, oh my God, they created a show for me. <laughs> it is like, we'll watch it for hours and it's everywhere. You know, every product you experience, the first thought, how it's made, why it's made that way, you know, what's behind it, like learning about it is just something I absolutely love. And I think that any three words, uh, I think those would be the ones. Awesome. Well, appreciate it. Glad to have you on the show today. Eric, super fun talking to you. Thank you for having me.